preserved by miracle when yacht sank. Stop. Saved by good ship Titanic. Arrive New York tomorrow. Stop. Weather cold, otherwise all well. Stop, Pete. Oh well, you win some, you lose some. Welcome to the August issue of Worcester's talking magazine, Look Here. I'm Pippa Curtis, and this month we pursue the notion of winners and losers. And to help us to do that, here in the studio with me are the very competitive Phil Lee, Hello. Jane Fairs, Hello. and standing in for Catherine, Jim Norris. Hello. That telegram from the ill-fated yachtsman, purportedly sent from the Titanic, can be found in Michael Green's book, Further Undiscovered Letters, which is a humorous publication so it may turn out to be no cause for concern, though one can't help recalling the saying, it never rains but it pours. Amos Russell-Wells, however, has a recommendation which that sailor would have done well to heed. Phil. When work is harassing and driving you mad, and not enough patience and strength to be had, I'll give you a medicine, fairly sublime. Just get a bottle of one at a time. Take one at a time, brother. Soon you will find quiet serenity filling your mind. Heaps of accomplishments swiftly will climb, moved by the magic of one at a time. And if, despite that, everything still goes pear-shaped, Nilgin Yusuf, writing in Harper's Bazaar magazine, reckons there's a lot to learn, even from that. Jim. In a sport like professional football, where the stakes are high, it is all about winning. But what can we learn from sport about the value of defeat? Loss or failure is a constant thread throughout life, but one we're discouraged to dwell on. In a culture that favours winners, setbacks have negative connotations which we prefer to avoid. Those have not been good enough, inferior or unworthy. At school sports days, children are now told, everyone's a winner, and garlanded with stickers and medals, simply for participating. And it's true that taking part is what counts. But this well-meaning adult intention to protect young ones from painful feelings only stalls the inevitable. In 2016, sports journalist Sam Weinman wrote, Win at losing. How our biggest setbacks can lead to our greatest gains. Partly inspired by the bleak reaction of his children when dealing with losing at a hockey match, or messing up a maths exam. He interviewed a number of high-profile individuals known for their significant track record of failure before breaking through, and writes, Uninterrupted success is a fantasy. Losing is not only something we should tolerate, but that we need. Rather than avoidance, processing the reality of defeat is an essential part of growing up, learning and living. Before we learn to walk, we fall repeatedly. Before we talk, we struggle with the complexities of forming words. Prior to learning any skill, from driving to riding a bike, swimming or yoga, we must practice, struggle and fail many times. 
Albert Einstein recognized that failure is success in progress. For those with the right mindset, losing has many advantages. It can build character, resilience, determination and empathy. Whether it's an actual competition, personal or professional battle, losing is the best teacher. Have you heard of Thomas Neal? No, not the American baseball player. I'm sure you thought of him straight away. But the Thomas Neal, who was an MP back in the 17th century. Yes, that one. He had wide-ranging interests and was seriously into money, being in charge of the Royal Mint from 1686 to 1699. He was also a gambler and entrepreneur and notably developed a pair of dice to prevent cheating at gaming which is why we're more interested in him than the New York Yankees. Thomas Neal, the Englishman, the gambler, created the Million Lottery in 1694 to help finance the Nine Years' War against France. 100,000 £10 tickets were offered for sale and, guess what, Neal received 10% of the proceeds. The Million Lottery, or Million Adventure, as it was also known, was not the first national lottery, not by a long way. The Elizabethans did it, the Romans did it, even the Han Dynasty in China did it, and built the Great Wall from the Prophets. Queen Elizabeth I charted this country's first official lottery in 1567. Tickets cost 10 shillings each, which would have been about three weeks' wages for your average Elizabethan, and the grand prize was £5,000 which apparently would have bought you more than a 1,000 horses if you'd wanted, or if you'd had the space, 4,000 cows. Back to the present, and the UK National Lottery, with which we're all familiar, was established back in 1994, launched on TV by Noel Edmonds. Tickets cost a pound then, and the jackpot for the first draw was an estimated 7 million. According to the BBC, John Major, who was Prime Minister at the time, said, the country will be a lot richer because of the lottery. He omitted to point out that the country was also paying for it. Seven jackpot winners of that first lottery draw shared the cash, taking home £800,000 each. Since that time, lotteries have sprung up all over, including this one, as our chairman, Roger Knight, is keen to tell us. Worcester Community Lottery is an exciting weekly lottery that raises money for lots of good causes in Worcester, including us. Play the lottery and you support Worcester Talking News. It's that simple. Tickets for the lottery cost just £1 per week with a top prize of £25,000. Match all six numbers and you win the jackpot. From every £1 ticket you buy, name in Worcester Talking News, 50 pence will be sent to us to help us deliver a better and broader service. To buy a ticket, go to the WorcesterLottery.org website, click Play the Lottery button and follow the instructions. To make it easy for you, we are hoping to be able to provide a phone number to assist in purchasing tickets, which we will include in our recordings. The draw itself takes place every Saturday at 8pm. The May lottery draw generated £20 for Worcester Talking News, so please ask your friends and family to join in. Good luck! As Roger said there, to buy tickets for the Worcester Community Lottery and stand a chance of winning £25,000, 
go to the WorcesterLottery.org website. Click the white button marked Play the Lottery and on the next page, into the box where it says Search for a Cause, type Worcester Talking News and then click Search. On the next page, under Support Our Cause, click on Support Us and scroll down to where it gives the option to buy one or more tickets. If you're not already registered, you'll need to fill in your details at this stage and click Register Now. Once you're registered, you can click on Log In Here, enter your email address and password, whereupon another page will appear with a brown box saying Buy Tickets. Click on that and enter the six numbers you want to play with. They can be any numbers you want from 0 to 9, just numbers, no letters or punctuation marks. They can be in any order and they don't all need to be different. You can put in a couple of fours, for example, if you want. Any numbers will do. But for each ticket you buy, you'll want to have a different combination of numbers. No point having three tickets all with the same string of numbers. The computer that handles all of this generates a series of six random numbers in a random order. If it finds that one of your tickets contains two or more of those six numbers in the same order, you win. If you match all six numbers, you win the £25,000, although you may have to share in the extremely unlikely event that somebody else has also matched them. If you've matched five of the six numbers, you win £2,000, four matches will get you £250 and three matches £25. If you match only two of the six numbers, they'll still give you three extra tickets ready for next time as a kind of consolation prize, but that will increase your chances of winning in the future. As Roger said, if all that sounds a bit involved, we're hoping to be able to give you a telephone number soon that you can ring for help in buying lottery tickets. We'll let you know in a talking newspaper when that number becomes available. By the way, if you did want to bet on the outcome of the forthcoming Yankees versus Houston game, I believe you're not allowed to, unless you actually live in Texas or in New York State. Better stick with Worcester. Here's a poem by 12-year-old Lena Patel. It's called Lost Things. Jane. We lose things all the time. Socks in the laundry, hats, pencils, purses, library books, papers, coats, the grocery list, a stuffed animal. Or even we lose our senses, our temper, our minds, our heads, our hearts, our faith. But my question is... Where do those lost things go? Does some magical force whisk them away into a land of cake and candy? Do future life forms transport them to another planet with all the technology we haven't begun to discover? Do they float into the clouds, visiting raindrops twirling with snow? Does a dragon with leathery wings and breath of fire flap down to snatch them up with wide red jaws 
do they just disappear? Do we allow them to leave through some subconscious decision? Do they creep away themselves, stalking silently away from their owner, who, in the meantime, has looked everywhere, has just about had it, has to think of a better way to find it? We sometimes get lost, misread a map, forget the directions, make a wrong turn. When that happens, who has misplaced us? Who is our owner? And when will we be returned? What happens when lost things get forgotten, replaced, left behind? Are they still lost? What happens when you don't know something is lost and you're not worried, not searching? Is it still lost? Sometimes, if the lost thing is a part of you, you may never really get it back. My favourite part of losing things is finding them again, after the long, deliberate hunt, and the search seems worthwhile. We finally discover their hidden location, like buried treasure. Sometimes, the hidden home of what's missing is hardly hidden after all, is really right in front of you, is somewhere that makes you say, oh, of course, why didn't I think of that before? Sometimes it takes only a little while to find lost things. Sometimes it takes weeks, months, years, and you remember, after all the time, you remember losing it. You remember what it meant, you remember how you felt, like a dream, and you grasp it in your hand and press it to your heart and put it back where it belongs, found. Derek Fox is a winner. Not only did he bet quite a lot of money on Corak Rambler in this year's Grand National, he also rode the horse to first place, at eight to one odds. Trained by Lucinda Russell for the Ramblers Syndicate, Corrick Rambler's name will be added to the long list of national winners, with such evocative names as Papillon in 2000 and Lescargo back in the 1970s. Jim. Shergar was a champion horse born in Kildare in 1978, who won the Epsom Derby and the Irish Derby. He was worth £10 million and belonged to the Aga Khan. After his wins, the Aga Khan decided to retire him to stud in Ireland, and there he returned in a blizzard of headlines. He attracted crowds wherever he went. Unfortunately, he attracted the wrong sort of attention. Kieran Conway, former IRA intelligence chief, said that the IRA thought stealing the horse was a good idea as the Aga Khan had no political issues regarding paying any ransom. There was just a shortage of cash. Bank robberies and the like were more difficult than they had been in the early 1970s. They, the IRA, had to get it somewhere, so they turned to kidnapping. Jim Fitzgerald, who was head groom at Ballymeny Stud, remembers clearly what happened the night of 8th of February, 1983. 
These gangsters came in with guns, he said. They said what they were there for, so they brought me down to the stable where the horse was, and I put him in the small horse box for them gangsters to take him away. Mr Fitzgerald was also taken away by the gang and eventually released. Little evidence was found at the scene and the trail quickly went cold. Calls to the Aga Khan's office and to the Ballymeny stud led nowhere. The kidnapped gang was never heard of again. No ransom was ever paid. No one ever officially admitted responsibility and no one has ever been convicted of a crime related to Shergar. The case remains open. However, during attempts to prove Shergar was dead to get insurers to pay out, an account of what happened was given by jailed RA informant Sean O'Callaghan. O'Callaghan claimed the horse was killed within 24 hours. He was absolutely definitive that the animal had died very quickly. The animal was taken in a horse box on the road up to Lytrim. He had become excitable. They stopped several times to quiet the horse and they discovered that he had fractured one of his leg bones. He was in considerable distress and not having any veterinary backup, they felt they had no alternative but to destroy the horse and that is when they shot him. O'Callaghan said Sherga's remains were left in the countryside around the village of Ballinmore, near the border. Filmmaker Alison Millarm, who made the Shergar documentary, believes people there know the location, but when she visited the area, no one was prepared to discuss it. What a sad end. On a happier note, Red Rum, another Irish horse. A champion thoroughbred steeplechaser, he won the Grand National in 1973, 1974, 1977, coming second in the two intervening years, 1975 and 1976. He was renowned for his jumping ability, not having fallen in a hundred races. Red Rum was prepared for a sixth attempt at the Grand National the season following his 1977 win, but suffered a hairline fracture in the lead-up to the 1978 race. Following a canter at entry race course the day before the 1978 Grand National, he was retired. The news of Red Rum's retirement was the lead story on that night's 9 o'clock news on BBC One and was also front-page news in the following morning's newspaper. Red Rum had become a national celebrity, opening supermarkets, and annually leading the Grand National Parade for many further years. His likeness graced playing cards, mugs, posters, models, paintings, plates and jigsaw puzzles. Several books have been written about him by his trainer, sculptor, jockeys and author Ivor Herbert. A children's story about his life was also written by Christine Pemberton. The horse helped open the steeplechase roller coaster at Blackpool Pleasure Beach in 1977. He also switched on the Blackpool Illuminations that year. Also in 1977, he appeared as a studio guest at the BBC Sports Personality of the Year awards ceremony. Needless to say, he did not win. He has a life-size statue at Entry Racecourse, a smaller bronze statue inside Wayfarer's Arcade Southport, and has the Red Rum Handicap Chase at Entry named after him.
Redrum died on the 18th of October 1995, aged 30. His death was one of the lead items in television news bulletins and also made the front pages of the nation's newspapers the next day. He was buried at the winning post of the entry race course, which is still a destination for his fans. In the early 1970s, the future running of the Grand National was uncertain. The emergence of Red Rum and his historic triumphs captivated the nation and ensured huge public support for the fund to buy entry and put it into the hands of the Jockey Club. The Grand National is, of course, a steeplechase where the horses have to jump over large fences. The word steeplechase is derived from early races in which orientation on the course was by reference to a church steeple. For Phil here, on the other hand, steeplechasing means chasing around the countryside in his car, looking for and at churches and their steeples. The church he visited the other day at Oddingley, just to the northeast of Worcester, doesn't actually have a steeple, but it still offers plenty of tangible clues to many of history's inner conflicts. We're standing at the south porch of Oddingley Church, which is a, a bit of a remote structure, really. We're looking across the Worcester to Birmingham Canal and the, the railway line that also leads up to Birmingham. It's a very rural scene. The village that the church used to serve has largely disappeared, although there are lumps and bumps in the countryside that give us some idea that there might have been some dwellings fairly close by. There would possibly have been a church here in Saxon times, although that's not all that likely. Uh, the real church building programme began when the Normans arrived, and what we're looking at is what has been built to replace a replacement for the Norman church. We can tell by the way that it's laid out that it must have been built in its present form, certainly not much later than 1200 and something, although the tracery in the windows, and by tracery I mean the way the stonework is designed to hold the glass, varies from uh, the 14th century right through to, uh, could even be the end of the 15th century when there was a style called perpendicular. The church is dedicated to a St. James. We're not quite sure which St. James it is because there were an awful lot of them, but it's probably St. James the Great, the man who was son of Zebedee, the fisherman on the Sea of Galilee. Um, so we're in the church of St. James at Oddingley and we're about to go inside. I'm stepping inside the door now and I'm immediately in front of a font. Now this is a very interesting font. It's a um, 15th century one, it's made of stone, it's got a wooden top with a cross on, which you'd expect, and carved into the side of it are some rather marvellous symbols. I'm looking at a rose, now it's not coloured, it probably would have been originally, but it would have been a white rose, and that's the white rose of the House of York. We're very much in a Yorkist church here, and if I move slightly to my left, I'm looking at what was... I know a fetter lock. Now the fetter lock was the symbol of the House of York. So they've left their symbols on the font for everyone to see. So we're already in no doubt as to what we're going to get, which is brilliant. Now I'm walking along the center of the church through the nave, a very atmospheric place. 
We've got a wonderful piece of brass I just noticed on the side of the nave here, um, which is dedicated to a Robert Cameron Galton of Shelsby Grange, who it says slept in Christ March AD 1866. Right, we're going to walk towards the east end of the church, stepping up into the chancel. And already we can see the most marvellous piece of stained glass in front of us, made up of one, two, three, four major figures. And then there are some smaller figures at the bottom and some jumbled pieces of glass at the top. And what's happened at the top is the window has clearly been um, partially destroyed in the past and people have put the bits back. Um, but in a sort of jumbly order, which I think is quite attractive, but isn't everyone's cup of tea. The major figure that really stands out here is Thomas Beckett. It's rather marvellous that he's still there because in the 1530s, Henry VIII decided that he would have the cult of Thomas Beckett abolished. Thomas Beckett was easily the most popular medieval saint in England. And he had stood up against Henry II who'd had him murdered in Canterbury Cathedral in 1170. Now, Henry VIII didn't like the sound of churchmen standing up against kings, so he had the whole cult abolished. This one, though, rather remarkably, is still here. Equally remarkable is that we've got a coat of arms top right, and it's the Mortimer coat of arms. Now, the Mortimers were the family through which Edward IV claimed the throne, the Yorkists, if you like, claimed the throne. So it's quite surprising that that's been left up there, really. People in the past uh, were very prone to destroy things in churches that they thought gave the wrong political or religious message. That's still here. We've got an interesting story for you here. Um, there was a rather famous murder in 1806 which reached national prominence and became a national cause of all sorts of gossip and discussion and has to do with the Reverend George Parker who was rector of this place at the beginning of the 19th century. He arrived here and at that time churchmen were still entitled to collect what were called tithes. Now tithes way back in the day had been 10% of what the people who lived locally produced but it had been changed into a money payment, and that money payment hadn't kept pace with inflation, basically. So the Reverend Parker, when he got here, was rather appalled at the small amount of money that he was going to be collecting, tried to negotiate with the locals to raise that. They wouldn't have it. And so what he said was, right, OK, I shall go back to the old way of doing it, and I shall collect 10% of everything that you produce. Now, that didn't go down at all well. So it was in this sort of atmosphere of animosity that George's body was found on the 24th of June in 1806. The murderer appeared to have escaped, no uh, culprit was ever found and eventually the, the, the authorities of the time rather gave up on it. But, 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 in 1830 the body of Robert Hemming was discovered buried in a barn locally. Now Robert Hemming was the person that most locals privately believed had done the original murder. The people who killed him were by now dead, and the man who owned the barn, who was supposed to be complicit in this, uh, was found not guilty by a jury in Worcester in 1831. So nobody ever paid the price. The fact that this church was very much a Yorkist church would have benefited it enormously in terms of patronage, someone important in the political scene looking after its, its future and its material state of being. 
uh, and that has had a huge influence on, on what is Oddingley Church, a very typical Yorkist church. Wow, that was fascinating, Phil. So informative. What chance we could persuade you to make that a regular feature? Yeah, I think we can do that, Pips. Wonderful. Researching for her book, Finding the Plot, Anne Treneman has done a fair bit of churchyard hunting herself in her quest for the most interesting interments in Britain. Finding along the way the grave of one Englishman who had great success in his pursuit of failure, Jane. There is something quite perfect about David Such, or, as he styled himself, Screaming Lord Such, third baronet of Harrow, being buried in Pinner, the epitome of suburban outer London obscurity. He was the classic English eccentric, the man who gave us the loony party, the oddball with the megaphone and the top hat, festooned with buttons, on the fringe of what seemed like every significant by-election in the 1980s. There really cannot be many people buried in Pinner whose death was reported in the following way. Downing Street has led the tributes to Lord Such, the leader of the official monster raving loony party, who has been found dead at his London home. He was 58. I think that he would have been impressed... When I visited his grave, which he shares with his mother Nancy, to whom he was devoted, it was festooned with an ancient, decaying top hat, tinged an alien green from lichen, and the remains of a CD by Doppelhertz, a tribute to Lord Such's first career. I'm not counting his time as a window cleaner. In the early 1960s, as a pioneer of horror rock, this is how Lord Such would later describe how he was discovered. I was doing the horror, he said, screaming and yelling. I had 18 inches of hair and I was running round in buffalo horns and my auntie's leopard skin coat. And the scout said, you've got a different approach. You want to make a record? He did. Early subject matter revolved around coffins and graveyards. I blame Dickens, whom his mother loved for naming him after David Copperfield, for the great writer loved a good graveyard. Indeed, the song that was left on his grave, which Doppelhertz had covered, was called Jack the Ripper, which such performed with huge theatricality, murdering one or another of his bandmates before throwing hearts and livers from the butchers, thank God, into the audience. Politics would prove a little less bloody. He first stood as a candidate for the National Teenage Party in 1963 in Stratford-upon-Avon. The by-election called after the Profumo scandal. It wasn't until the 1980s when he founded the Loonies that he found fame. This was the Thatcher era. Indeed, he ran against her in East Finchley in 1983. Bizarrely, though that word seems slightly superfluous in his case, at one point he considered changing his name to Margaret Thatcher, but decided it would be too confusing, not quite sure for whom. His slogans were memorable. 
Vote for insanity. You know it makes sense. But many of the earlier policies, the right to vote at 18, the launch of commercial radio, passports for pets, knighthoods for the Beatles, did eventually catch on. He stood for election 39 times, a perpetual figure of fun, the pricker of pomposity, the clown at the edge of the count. The loonies continued without him, often turning out to be surprisingly sane and always enlivening the political scene. His death was sad. He suffered from depression and the death of his mum in 1997 hit him especially hard. But his epitaph on his grave, which is in section J2 on the outside edge, says it all. A lord without peer, such is the way it was with him, and such is the way he'll always be with us. And always be in Pinner, too. Himself no stranger to controversy, Worcester councillor Alan Amos instigated an award scheme while he was mayor, which he christened the Best of Worcester. Under the scheme, which continues to this day, annual awards are given to charities or individuals who've made a notable contribution to their community. You may remember that the Worcester Talking News itself won the prize back in 2020. Prior to the award ceremony that year, held because of coronavirus on the steps of the Guildhall, Councillor Amos told us how the scheme got started. Well, when I was mayor, and I've been on the council for some time and before that, I realised there were a lot of people out there doing a lot of good work for other people, what I call unsung heroes. They were just doing good works for others. They didn't want any recognition or any reward. Um, and I thought it was about time we did recognise them and we did reward them. So when I was mayor, we set up the first ever Best of Worcester Awards to recognise and reward people who had worked hard for others, not expecting anything back themselves. And that's how it started. And the good news is most mayoral events happen once during the lifetime of the mayor, which is for one year only. But we've carried on with this. And we're now six years on from when I was mayor. Uh, and so this is a, a continuing event. And of course, we've developed it. It, it, it adapts to changing circumstances. We're looking for people who have voluntarily decided they want to do something to help others. And that's the essence of it. Um, putting in time, not necessarily money, but time, uh, concern for others, trying to improve the lives of others, um, recognising there are people who are less fortunate and doing something about it. The award was received on behalf of the Worcester Talking News by Liz Hill and Carol Hartle. Um, thank you to everyone who's contributed to this and it's amazing after 42 years that we've actually uh, had an acknowledgement and a reward and we really appreciate it. So how did it feel to be a winner? Um, very privileged, yes. It's uh, a, a great honour, I think, to be recognised. Worcester Talking News and Equipment Services for the Blind is a fairly low-profile charity in recent years. And, um, as I've said before, to win against the strong competition of the hospice community team and discover history uh, is, is really wonderful. And we're very appreciative of, of being recognised. Uh, and uh, it's a tribute also to all the volunteers who contribute to that recording, and uh, it's, it's great, wonderful. Yeah, thank you. The award itself is in the form of a glass plaque, which we now display proudly here at the studio.
Okay, here's something we haven't done in a while. A word search. You'll remember, this is where I give you a list of words, and then read a little story in which those words are hidden. In this one, the words you're looking for are actually the names of mostly 17th and 18th century poets. You don't have to know anything about 17th and 18th century poets, only their names, and I shall give you those in a list anyway. What you do need to do, though, is to listen hard while I read the story and try and pick out as many of those names as you can. I'll do the first one to get you in the mood, or put you off entirely. The first poet's name to listen out for is Byron, a great mate of Percy Bysshe Shelley. And the first thing you'll say is that Byron was a 19th century poet, not an 18th century one, at least not when he was working. But hey, this is a game, not a study of English literature. You'll find Byron's name hidden somewhere in the first couple of sentences of this passage in which a present-day ice cream seller tells of an incident in a local park. Listen out for the name Byron. It was a sunny summer's morning and I had secured a lakeside pitch for my ice cream van and another for my friend's hot dog stall. I was just about set up when a harassed-looking woman with a screaming child came up to the serving hatch. Can I buy Ronnie an ice cream, please? She pleaded. It might quieten him down. That's it. Did you get it? If you want to hear it again and you're listening on a boombox, just hit the track back button. That's the leftmost yellow button on the top of the box. And it should take you back to the beginning of the passage. If you're hearing this on the internet or in one of our podcasts, say... You'll just have to slide your cursor back a bit and hope for the best. One way or another, you should discover the great poet's name barely hidden here. Can I buy Ronnie an ice cream, please? Buy Ronnie? Byron? Yes, I know. It gets worse. Here's a list of seven more poets for you to find. Shakespeare. Sheridan. Pope. Goethe. Taylor Coleridge, John Clare and John Donne. I'll give you that list again. Shakespeare, Sheridan, Pope, Goethe, Taylor Coleridge, John Clare and John Donne. Our ice cream seller's story continues. The little lad didn't fancy an ice cream, though. Want milkshake, he wailed. Quickly, I asked, what flavour milkshake, spearmint or peanut and anantiado sherry? Dang me, said the next person in the queue. He was an American tourist. That's an unusual potpourri. Not at all, I said. They often go together. The American asked for a Coca-Cola served with a garnish of stuffed aubergine. <laughs> I'm sorry, I apologised. I can't tailor cola rigidly to individuals' tastes, but I could throw in a chocolate eclair if you want. Done, he said. If you want to hear it again, and I understand if you don't, but if you do, hit that trackback button on the left. So how many did you spot? We had what flavour milkshakes? Spearmint? Shakespeare? Amontillado sherry? Dang me. Sherry Dan? And then an unusual potpourri, Pope. Oh, I apologise for the next one. Go together. 
that I was quite pleased with tailor cola rigidly to individuals' tastes. The last two, chocolate eclair for John Clare and done for done. Can you bear any more? I've got more. I've got seven more. Shelley, great mate of Byron, you remember. Anne Lee, Congreve, Milton, Voltaire and Tennyson and Robbie Burns. And here they are again. Shelley, Anne Lee, Congreve, Milton, Voltaire, Tennyson and Robbie Burns. Anne Lee is probably the least well-known, but the others, Shelley, Congreve, Milton, Burns, Voltaire and Tennyson, we've all heard of them. But can you spot where they're hiding as we finish off our morning in the park? The queue at my friend's stall was headed up by two young ladies, both more interested in him than in his hot dogs. Do you think he fancies you, Michelle? He keeps looking at us, she giggled. My friend was not swayed by her womanly wiles and barked, Breakfast? Have you got a bacon for tea? One of them asked. Sorry, no bacon, he called out. It burns too easily. What? No bacon? Grieving fans of the full English wailed from the back of the queue. How about a milt-in-the-mouth gobstopper? I offered hopefully. The crowd was getting ugly, so my friend suggested a game to avoid a revolt. Anyone for tennis and a swim in the lake? He shouted, retreating to the beer tent. If you want to hear it again, hit that trackback button on the left. First up, Shelley. Michel, he keeps looking at us. Then the rather trickier womanly wiles, Hanley. And you don't get a prize for spotting Robbie Burns too easily. But you should be pleased if you've got bacon-grieving fans, Congreve, and perhaps milt-in-the-mouth gobstopper. The last two, Voltaire and Tennyson, sneaked around the back for the big finish. Avoid a revolt, anyone, for tennis and a swim in the lake? Maybe that's why it's been a while since we did the last word search. That was a John Plush word search. And how many poets did you score? From winning, we swing back to losing. Elizabeth Bishop wrote a poem about how easy it is to lose even the most precious thing. One art. The art of losing isn't hard to master. So many things seem filled with the intent to be lost that their loss is no disaster. Lose something every day. Accept the fluster of lost door keys, the hour badly spent. The art of losing isn't hard to master. Then practice losing farther, losing faster, places and names and where it was you meant to travel. None of these will bring disaster. I lost my mother's watch. And look, my last or next to last of three loved houses went. The art of losing isn't hard to master. I lost two cities, lovely ones. And vaster, some realms I owned, two rivers, a continent. I miss them but it wasn't a disaster. Even losing you, 
the joking voice, a gesture I love. I shan't have lied. It's evident the art of losing's not too hard to master. Though it may look like, write it, like disaster. Elizabeth mentions losing a house, even a city. Britain, particularly our east coast, has literally lost many. Jim. Dunwich in Suffolk was once one of England's largest ports with a thriving herring fishing trade, but it was largely swallowed by the sea in storms in the 13th and 14th centuries. This was followed by years of erosion. It has been said that you can still hear the church bells of the submerged church during bad storms. Dunwich is only one of several communities on England's east coast that must decide whether to promote a managed retreat inland or to hold the line, which presumably means defence. Defence costs money. Norfolk, the neighbouring county, loses an average of 4.2 metres of coastline every year in various locations. Therefore, for the property and business owners living on the coast of Norfolk, it is just a matter of time before coastal erosion will send their properties into the ocean. A caravan site has already fallen on its soft cliffs, which are made of clay and sand. Three kilometres from Haysborough, the old fishing village of Eccles-on-Sea has almost entirely gone, and the site of another medieval town, Shipton, has long been submerged. By 2055, the heart of Haysborough, including the pub and a 14th-century church, will be at risk of toppling into the sea. It is not only on the east coast that erosion is happening. Unfortunately, the coastal erosion in Norfolk's soft cliffs has been going on for thousands of years, but climate change effects such as sea level rising and more frequent storms can exacerbate the effect. The medieval map of the area show several settlements surrounding the coast that have long disappeared under the sea. It was after the Second World War, when larger towns built substantial sea defences in the form of groins and revetments in response to a great flood in 1953, when more than 300 people on the east coast died. As these defences aged and maintenance costs shot up, attitudes have shifted. In the 1990s, guided by the Environment Agency, Local authorities decided to let erosion have its way and drop all coastal protection based on the costs and economic value of the area. In some areas, nature does have some natural protection as the salt marshes act as a buffer from floods and large dunes slow erosion. In other regions, man-made defences like seawalls and the piling of sand along the coastline offer some protection against erosion. However, Haysborough and other rural villages lack natural protection and resources to build such costly defences, driving local authorities and the Environment Agency in 2004 to release a draft shoreline management plan to let existing coastal defences fail. The question remains, what to do with the properties at risk of disappearing? These property owners cannot buy insurance for erosion, nor does the Environment Agency want to overcompensate them for their property for fear that it will drive owners to construct new houses in the area. 
As a solution, the North Norfolk District Council devised a new scheme to allow permission to build in Haysborough or nearby towns so that private developers would buy the land that was about to fall off the cliff, allowing homeowners to move out of the area without depending on the government to buy them out. Whether the scheme will be successful before the tides eat away the cliff where these properties stand remains to be seen. In the meantime, the District Council has the moral obligation to help relocate the community before their homes tumble into the ocean. Will it face this obligation? Enough of losing. What's it like to be on a winning team, with the world watching you? Phil went to meet Tim Curtis, former cricketer for Worcestershire in England. Tim Curtis, you've been uh, a professional cricketer, you've played for Worcestershire, you've captained Worcestershire and you've played for England too. Were you competitive from an early age? Yes, is the simple answer. Um, and this is reinforced to me all the time by my friends who, who've made me feel a little bit better about myself now because they say that, um, yes, you are competitive, Tim, but you're only competitive with yourself. You're not competitive with us. Um, so I don't know how true that actually is, but... Yeah, everything I think in my um, young life was framed as a competition, um, be that the number of catches that I could consecutively take throwing a ball against a wall. I had to beat my dad when we played a 10-wicket innings in the back garden. It's pretty clear in my mind that I was competitive from the start. Did you choose cricket as your sport, as your main sport, because I know you're a talented sportsman all around. Did you choose cricket as your sport or did it choose you? Okay, so my father was a very good club cricketer in Bristol and Stafford. Uh, my mum was from Yorkshire stock and a PE teacher, so I think genetically perhaps I was predisposed, certainly towards sport, possibly towards cricket. And my parents then moved in December 62, I think it was, um, to Malvern and directly next to Barnards Green Cricket Club. I walked through the hedge and I was on the outfield of Barnards Green Cricket Club. And cricket balls landed in our back garden periodically, um, so I had a, a ready supply. So I think my passion for cricket is such that I would always have chosen it, but everything was also pointing in that direction. And at that point, did it ever strike you that you might become a professional cricketer? Not in December 1962, no, I don't think so. <laughs> but before too long after that, it became my dream that I wanted to do that. Uh, my dad was very worried about me losing my joy of sport by playing professionally, um, which were words that always were in the back of my mind when I was playing. Um, that became uh, salved as an issue because I I trained as a teacher and had had some backup to it. But yeah, I suspect like many young, uh, young boys and girls, once they have a passion for a particular thing, they want to pursue it to the highest level. Um, and so, yeah, it was it was very much there. I'm not sure how actively I moved towards it or whether I just continued to do my thing growing up and opportunities presented themselves uh, serendipitously almost. What's the first triumph that you remember? <laughs> I remember as a, as a schoolboy playing for Worcestershire Second Eleven um, in the summer holiday. We played Northamptonshire and we were getting stuffed in the game. It was a two-day game. I'd got 20-odd not out, I think, in the first things. I went out to bat about number seven, and we were losing the game again. I remember this guy, I think his name was Flynn. What I remember is he had hairy forearms, 
And that sort of denoted someone that was sort of muscular and stronger and more adult than, than I was as a sort of callow youth. And he bowled it quite fast and short and was sort of aiming at my body. I got hit once or twice. I defended the ball in front of my face. And my parents were going on holiday. And I kind of presented a choice to me. You know, do I want to go on holiday with them? Or do I want to stay here and fight this out? Because what that meant was playing in the next match for the, for the county. It was a battle I wanted to win. He didn't get me out. We saved the game. And I've always looked back on that as being an absolutely pivotal moment. I, I could have said, nah, this isn't for me. But it was a personal thing. It, it was a competition and I had to win it. It's interesting how many sportsmen will often quote heroic defence as one of their triumphs <laughs> rather than a century or a fiver or whatever. Um, yeah. I presume, looking back at your answer to that question, that it's because of your competitive spirit that you've got such a strict definition of triumph. <laughs> yeah, I, I think for me, I was always my harshest critic. So I, I, I always wanted to, to, to put together the perfect innings. Um, I always wanted to be able to play something where I had completely eliminated chance from what was happening, such that I could say, I did that. I did that myself. I didn't depend on an umpire. I didn't depend on a dropped catch. I didn't depend on good fortune. Is that degree of self-analysis universal in professional sportsmen, do you think? I don't think it is, no. <laughs> Tim, you've often been a winner during your career. Is there anything you wish you had won that you didn't? I was incredibly lucky. Um, at Worcestershire in the 80s, um, we, won, we won the Sunday League. Uh, we won the County Championship. We won the Benson Hedges Cup. We won the NatWest Trophy. We won the Refuge Assurance Cup. We won every domestic trophy that was available to be won. So from that point of view, I can't say that there's anything else that I would want to have won. I can't imagine how lovely it would be to be in an England dressing room and to win a test match because I played through a period when England cricket was at a low ebb before central contracts. Uh, 1989 against Australia in the Ashes there, we used 26 players in that series. Um, so chopping and changing all the time, that, that, that wasn't good. So I suppose to win a test match, to, imagine what it's like to win a test match in Australia or to win a series down there. That, that would be, the, for a cricket, English cricket, that would be the ultimate, I think. Tim Curtis, thank you so much for talking to us. It's been a real pleasure to listen to what you have to say. Thank you, Phil. A sport perhaps rather less popular these days than cricket is croquet, particularly so when played by the Queen of Hearts and her court, as Alice discovered during her adventures in Lewis Carroll's Wonderland. Jane. Alice thought she had never seen such a curious croquet ground in her life. It was all ridges and furrows. The balls were live hedgehogs, the mallets, live flamingos, and the soldiers had to double themselves up and to stand on their hands and feet to make the arches. The chief difficulty Alice found at first was in managing her flamingo. 
She succeeded in getting its body tucked away comfortably enough under her arm, with its legs hanging down, but generally, just as she had got its neck nicely straightened out and was going to give the hedgehog a blow with its head, it would twist itself round and look up in her face with such a puzzled expression that she could not help bursting out laughing. And when she had got its head down and was going to begin again, it was very provoking to find that the hedgehog had unrolled itself and was in the act of crawling away. Besides all this, there was generally a ridge or furrow in the way wherever she wanted to send the hedgehog to, and, as the doubled-up soldiers were always getting up and walking off to other parts of the ground, Alice soon came to the conclusion that it was a very difficult game indeed. The players all played at once, without waiting for turns, quarrelling all the while and fighting for the hedgehogs, and in a very short time the Queen was in a furious passion and went stamping about and shouting, ''Off with his head!'' or off with her head, about once a minute. Alice began to feel very uneasy. To be sure, she had not as yet had any dispute with the Queen, but she knew that it might happen any minute. And then, thought she, what would become of me? They're dreadfully fond of beheading people here. A great wonder is that there's anyone left alive. I don't think they play at all fairly, and they all quarrel so dreadfully, one can't hear oneself speak, and they don't seem to have any rules in particular, at least if there are, nobody attends to them, and how confusing it is, all the things being alive. There's the arch I've got to go through next, walking about at the other end of the ground and I should have croqueted the Queen's Hedgehog just now, only it ran away when it saw mine coming. Alice heard the Queen's voice in the distance, screaming with passion. She had already heard her sentence three of the players to be executed for having missed their turns, and she did not like the look of things at all, as the game was in such confusion that she never knew whether it was her turn or not. So she went in search of her hedgehog. The hedgehog was engaged in a fight with another hedgehog, which seemed to Alice an excellent opportunity for croqueting one of them with the other. The only difficulty was that her flamingo was gone across to the other side of the garden, where Alice could see it trying in a helpless sort of way to fly up into a tree. By the time she had caught the flamingo and brought it back, the fight was over, and both the hedgehogs were out of sight. But it doesn't matter much, thought Alice, as all the arches had gone from the side of the ground. All the time they were playing, the Queen never left off quarrelling with the other players and shouting, off with his head, or off with her head. Those whom she sentenced, were taken into custody by the soldiers, who, of course, had to leave off being arches to do this, so that by the end of half an hour or so, there were no arches left, and all the players, except the King, the Queen and Alice, were in custody and under sentence of execution. <laughs>
Lewis Carroll reinventing a traditional game. Winnie the Pooh, of course, invented his own game. By the time it came to the edge of the forest, the stream had grown up, so that it was almost a river. And being grown up, it didn't run and jump and sparkle along as it used to do when it was younger, but moved more slowly. For it knew now where it was going, and it said to itself, there's no hurry, we shall get there some day. But all the little streams higher up in the forest went this way and that, quickly, eagerly, having so much to find out before it was too late. There was a broad track, almost as broad as a road, leading from the outland to the forest. But before it could come to the forest, it had to cross this river. So, where it crossed, there was a wooden bridge, almost as broad as a road, with wooden rails on each side of it. Christopher Robin could just get his chin onto the top rail if he wanted to. But it was more fun to stand on the bottom rail so that he could lean right over and watch the river slipping slowly away beneath him. Pooh could get his chin onto the bottom rail if he wanted to. But it was more fun to lie down and get his head under it and watch the river slipping slowly away beneath him. And this was the only way in which Piglet and Roo could watch the river at all because they were too small to reach the bottom rail. So they would lie down and watch it, and it slipped away very slowly, being in no hurry to get there. One day, when Pooh was walking towards this bridge, he was trying to make up a piece of poetry about fir cones, because there they were, lying about on each side of him, and he felt singy. So he picked a fir cone up and looked at it and said to himself, this is a very good fir cone and something ought to rhyme to it. But he couldn't think of anything. And then this came into his head suddenly. Here is a mystery about a little fir tree. Owl says it's his tree and Kanga says it's her tree. Which doesn't make sense, said Pooh, because Kanga doesn't live in a tree. He'd just come to the bridge and not looking where he was going, he tripped over something and the fur cone jerked out of his paw and into the river. Bother, said Pooh, as it floated slowly under the bridge, and he went back to get another fur cone which had a rhyme to it. But then he thought that he'd just look at the river instead because it was a peaceful sort of day. So he lay down and looked at it, and it slipped slowly away beneath him. And suddenly there was his fur cone slipping away too. That's funny, said Pooh. I dropped it on the other side, said Pooh, and it came out on this side. I wonder if it would do it again. And he went back for some more fur cones. It did. It kept on doing it. Then he dropped two in at once and leant over the bridge to see which of them would come out first. And one of them did. But as they were both the same size, he didn't know if it was the one which he wanted to win or the other one. So the next time he dropped one big one and one little one and the big one came out first, which is what he had said it would do, and the little one came out last, which was what he had said it would do. So he had won twice, and when he went home for tea, he had won 36 and lost 28, which meant that he was... that he'd have, Well, you take 28 from 36, and that's what he was, instead of the other way round. And that was the beginning of the game called Pooh Sticks, which Pooh invented. 
Continuing with our bucolic theme, Vonya Carlton is in her garden picking up some tips from landscape gardener Mike Lane in Growing Sense. So, Mike, what do you think to my fruit bushes? This is looking great. Absolutely superb. It is, isn't it? The yep. raspberries, the late raspberries, yes. are all sort of like beginning to show their fruit. And yep. Now I'm so excited. What have we got over here? Well, there's some gooseberries. Okay. Um, they're a bit prickly, so be careful. Yeah. This looks like an interesting... Um, is it a blackberry? Yes, a thornless blackberry. Oh, okay. So, yeah. so we can pick these... And we don't have to worry about getting cut then. No, I know. They're just fantastic. I mean, I love blackberries. love blackberry and apple crumble. Oh, we exactly. all do, don't we? Exactly. But it's horrible if you're confronted by all the thorns. Yes. Yeah. 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 And I'm also impressed with the uh, the, the wildflower meadow, which we <gasps> yes. planted around the fruit trees. Magnificent. It, it's been it's, magnificent. It's been, yeah. 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 So I think I think over the next couple of weeks we probably want to look about strewing this down do we have to wait until the flowers have died though so yes. they seed yes yeah that's that's the important thing mm. so basically let it dry uh, so it's almost like straw um, mm. and even to touch you can feel it yeah. um, and it's quite woody and then that's a good time then to cut this down yeah um and then, and then yep all the seeds will go into the ground and then we'll come, back. come back next year yeah. Yeah, so, probably stronger as well. Yeah, hopefully. Mm, yeah, yeah very and nice. and to be honest, the fruit trees are, are, are doing okay considering they've been in now. Yeah, you know, almost um, what do we? Yeah, four months. Yeah. So yeah. there's a couple of apples have started to appear. I I think is, that you know they they've put their roots down, haven't yeah, they? Yeah. So that's more important, isn't it, for the first couple of years? I guess. Yes. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. And you've also been training the the, the grapevine. Very oh, well, actually. Assiduously, yes. Yeah, a, a, along along the wires. Mm. Um, maybe a bit disappointed on the on the amount of fruit, but then it's you know first year in the ground, so you know yeah. let's not worry about it. I mean, is it best to take the fruit off for the first year or two anyway? Yeah. See, then then it will just encourage the the growth to grow outwards. Yes. Um, yeah. They're almost ready to eat. I don't know whether you've tried yes. one yourself yet. It's, uh, <laughs> they're, they're never particularly sweet to start no, off with, are they, no, really? No. And, I mean, there's plenty of other jobs to be doing this time of the uh, year. Tell me. It's, it's, it's yeah, I don't know relentless. where to start, actually. So, the hedges, really, the hedges could do a, a, a bit of a trim. Yes. They started to sort of flop over some of the pathways um, and start to take up space. I'm, I'm getting a bit reluctant in certain places now to actually use hedge trimmers. Um, do it by hand. Do it by hand. Yes. Because um, if you slowly go through it, then you don't get any brown leaves. You know, with a hedge trimmer, you can cut the leaves, which then yes. go brown. So maybe just with a pair of secretaires, um, just slowly go through. Yeah. Especially some of these smaller uh, yeah. beaches. It seems you know, kinder, these, doesn't yes. it? And of course, now the birds have finished nesting and stuff. It's yeah. it's a good time, isn't it, to yeah. do that? The sweet peas have done incredibly well. Oh, the scent yes. is gorgeous. Yes. I just love the scent. Yeah. And what you do have to be careful of is you need to pick them, don't you? Yes. So yeah. that they keep coming. Yeah, pick them and get them into keep, the house. Keep, keeping on top of that is, is it's, quite it's a, difficult. But yeah, you are absolutely right. The scent, once you move them into the house, mm. is, is great. Yeah. Um, and also, I quite like sweet peas as well because we can actually reuse the seeds. Yeah. Collecting seeds from sweet yeah, peas from is sweet good peas. because they're quite large. Also, nasturtiums. Nasturtiums are very good. Large, yeah. aren't they? Yeah. And uh, I mean, you always remember if you're collecting them, have your envelope 
ready. Oh. There's nothing worse yeah. than collecting them and going, I've got nothing to put them into. Yeah, and you walk around with them in the palm of your hand that's and then it. you drop them everywhere. I quite like using the little boxes, like takeaway boxes. Yes. Because they've got a bit of depth to them. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and then you've got a lid as well. That's a good idea, actually. Yeah. And also, you can just rattle it. And you know there's something in there. And you know they're there. there. Yeah. yeah. And they stack. Yeah. Ta-da! Yeah. And whilst you've got those secateurs out... Oh, yes. We can also be looking at removing suckers from, oh. from some of the um, roses. Yes. And also some of the older trees, the more established trees you've yes. already got here. Yeah. Because they just keep coming from... They do. The roots. And the other boring task, um, if you don't want to end up spraying, is just getting on your hands and knees and removing weeds out of your patio. Yeah, when, when they're small, it's, it's OK to pull yeah, them out, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. It's much it's, better for the environment, Yeah, isn't it, just yeah. to pull them out? Just run your hand over the top yeah. and feel for and, them and yeah, then and just, just, pull, just them pull, pull them out. Yeah. So, tulips, daffodils. Tulips and daffodils. Have you started thinking about planting mm, for... No. It'll soon be here. I've got some from last year. Do you think they'll they'll still produce blooms, or do they do they go off after a few years? I'm in two minds, is the honest answer. Okay. Um, I have to say, from a tulip point of view, I reckon possibly one or two two years with the tulips is oh. about all you're going to get. Oh. Um, That's disappointing because yes. some of them are expensive. Yes, exactly. So I've kind of ended up just buying new tulips every year. Do you? And uh, oh. but, but I'm I'm also planting mainly into containers. Yes. Uh, the daffodils, I just quite happily leave them in the ground. Okay. Um, and let them let them come up. Mm. Have to make sure they're deep enough, I suppose. Yes, Otherwise, you keep yeah. digging them up with That's bedding it. plants. Bedding plants. Yeah. Also, when they're in the ground as well, they always sort of grow a friend, so to speak, and, oh, and keep yeah. keep keep yeah. you know yeah. producing more. So you, you start off with one daffodil, yeah. and then in say five to ten years' time, you've got a a larger area of yes. daffodils. Yeah. So it's I, l- I like that expression, grow a friend. Yeah, it's good. <laughs> <laughs> so. You'd never be lonely if you can grow a friend. No. <laughs> so, August, September. Mm. Traditionally, village shows, county shows, everything. Okay. And I can see that you've got some marrows already growing. Well, they started off as courgettes. Yeah. But one of them is pretty enormous so this could be a contestant possibly looking through the Worcester show brochure and some of the prizes on offer i think possibly it's about time that we all start thinking about uh, oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> about spending some time and maybe showing off some of these, extraordinary, these extraordinary veg, yeah. vegetables yeah um, so what sort of prize money are we talking about here, Mike? Well, my favourite one at the moment is uh, in the runner bean category, okay. which is this year sponsored by the Swan Theatre in Worcester. I love it. <laughs> and you get their pantomime tickets, oh. which, can you guess, is Jack and the Beanstalk. Oh, no, it so, isn't. <laughs> gosh, it's way too early for that. So there's a total of £65 for the longest runner bean. Okay. So that's two, uh, two adult tickets and two children's tickets to Jack and the Beanstalk. Okay. And then if you fancy growing them next year... We'll have a you, go, you, we? We could have a go. I need a large area to plant them in, <laughs> as you could well imagine. And it also takes up a lot of watering. 
and uh, soil prep as well okay. is very important. Well, we can definitely put it in the fruit area. In the fruit area. that's quite a large that's area, it. isn't it? That's yeah. it. So, great. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Mike. Okay, excellent. I think it's time for another cup of tea. How that about sounds it? great. Yeah. Really good. Come on, then. As authors go, few are as successful as Ian Fleming. Jim. Bond. James Bond. There have been 27 Bond films. I can hear a gasp of surprise. It certainly surprised me. They were made from 1961 until the last one, at the moment, in 2021. Bond has been played by Sean Connery, David Niven, George Lazenby, Roger Moore, Timothy Dalton, Pierce Brosnan and Daniel Craig. The search goes on for the next Bond. The character first appeared in a series of 12 novels and two short stories written by Ian Fleming and a number of continuation novels and spin-offs after Ian Fleming's death. Bond's literary portrayal differs in some ways from his treatment in the James Bond films. Fleming portrayed Bond as a tall, athletic, handsome secret agent in his 30s or 40s. He had several vices, including drinking, smoking, gambling automobiles and womanising. He is an exceptional marksman and is skilled in unarmed combat, skiing, swimming and golf. While Bond kills without hesitation or regret, he usually kills only when carrying out orders, while acting in self-defence or occasionally as revenge. After considering refined English actors such as Cary Grant and David Niven, the producers cast Sean Connery as Bond in the film Dr No. Fleming was appalled at the selection of the uncouth 31-year-old Scottish actor, considering him to be the antithesis of his character. However, Connery's physical prowess and sexual magnetism became closely identified with the character, with Fleming ultimately changing his view on Connery and incorporating aspects of his portrayal into the books. The screen versions have retained many traits from Fleming's depiction, although some of Bond's less politically correct traits have been phased out, such as his treatment of women and smoking. Ian Fleming only started writing fiction, he was a journalist, after he married at 44 Anne, the former wife of Viscount Rothermere. She had been urging him to write and in 1952 he took her up on it. He left his day job on newspapers to write novels full-time in 1959. Each book was a bestseller. Fleming said, I wanted to show a hero without any characteristics, who was simply the blunt instrument in the hands of the government. Then he started eating a number of meals and dressing in a certain way, so that he became encrusted with characteristics much against my will. Apart from the fact that he wears the same clothes that I wear, he and I have very little in common. I do rather envy him his blondes and his efficiency, but I can't say I much like the chap. Fleming's life, however, was in a mess. He had many affairs and had been drinking a bottle of gin and smoking 70 cigarettes a day. By the time he died from his second heart attack at the age of 56 in 1964, books about that chap had sold 20 million. 
Bill, do we have any James Bond in our Talking Books library? Pippa, we do. We have Casino Royale, Live and Let Die, and Diamonds Are Forever. Okay. If you'd like to send a request for one of these titles, just pop a note into a wallet you're returning or leave a message on our answering machine. This month, though, our talking book is Rumpole and a Primrose Path. This CD set invites us to spend three hours in the company of Horace Rumpole, an irascible barrister nearing the end of his chequered career spent in Chambers, the Old Bailey, and at home with his wife, whom he describes with some resignation as she who must be obeyed. There are four stories here, dramatised by the author John Mortimer, and these followed a highly rated and popular run of episodes on TV. John Mortimer was himself a lawyer who became a Queen's Counsel in 1966 and made his name prior to authorship in a series of obscenity cases where he acted for the defence. He was a consistent champion of free speech. The first Rumpole stories were published in 1978 after they'd first appeared on Thames TV. Mortimer is a wonderful writer who manages to convey an atmosphere of authenticity rather than realism in the courtroom while finding humour of all kinds. There's much delight in Rumpole's dealing with the staid characters in his chambers, Claude Erskine Brown and Sam Ballard, both QCs, some diamond geezers from the criminal margins of society and his long-suffering wife, who dominates him in all matters, save those that are of importance to Rumpole. And beyond all that, there are Rumpole's constant collisions with the pomposity of the judges chosen to hear the cases in which he appears, collisions in which Rumpole is rarely outwitted. The BBC has assembled some excellent casts here for the stories, the first of which concerns the Primrose Path itself, though not that path which leads to a life of pleasure and self-indulgence, so far as Rumpole is aware. Timothy West plays Rumpole, and Prunella Scales is his wife. And there are appearances, among others, from Nigel Anthony, Sophie Thompson, Nicholas Leprivost and Joanna David. Here, at the opening of the story Rumpole Redeemed, we get a snatch of the essential Rumpole. That evening I delayed my homeward journey and wandered into Pomeroy's wine bar, lonely as a cloud. I had just ordered my first glass of Chateau Thames Embankment. Rumpole! When I heard a brisk upper-crossed voice at my elbow. <laughs> Rumpel, I wasn't a word with you. Really? It was Archie Prosser, the newest arrival at our chambers. I want to invite you to lunch. Invite away, old darling. I hear they do an excellent liver and bacon at your club, preceded by a dozen oysters. If you think you like the sound of Rumpel, or if it will be revisiting an old friend, I can recommend this case of four CDs, all of which are in good condition and securely boxed. Any reservations? Only personal ones, in that two of my favourite characters, Judge Bullingham and the barrister Phyllida Trant, described by Rumpole as our Portia of the Chambers, don't appear in these stories. Too bad. If you'd like to borrow this audiobook, let us know at Colin Chant's house and we'll send it to you as it becomes available. In the meantime, whatever you're listening to and however you're listening to it, we wish you an enjoyable and rewarding time. Finally, this month, our audio playhouse and a battle of wills and wiles down on the farm in John Stanbury's Pips.
George! What? That was that Mr Dodge on the phone. What's he want? As if I didn't know. Says he's coming round to talk about the contract. When's he coming? Tomorrow morning. Oh, we are honoured. Huh. Only means one thing, though. The trouble is, Mr Furrow, the company's net turnover last quarter was much reduced compared with 12 months ago. Consumer buying habits are changing. What with energy costs, inflation, you know, the sort of thing. So it's us farmers I'll have to pay then, is it? Now, George, you know... You know fine foods always give you the best price for your fruit and veg. I see to that. The price that's best for fine foods, you mean. I barely make a living as it is. Now you're saying we're going to get two and a half percent less. It's business, Mr Furrow. It's criminal, Mr Dodge. That's what it is. Criminal. And you can put them papers back in your posh leather briefcase. I ain't going to sign nothing till I've had a proper discussion with my accountant. Well, that's your prerogative, of course, George. But remember... Although you may be getting a little less for your produce... Yeah, two and a half percent less. Well, a small reduction, considering the volatility of the market. But it's guaranteed income, George. And who else are you going to sell it to? I've got my contacts, Mr Dodge. A stall on the farmer's market once a week if it's not raining? Come on, George, see some sense. I'm going to see my accountant. If it's all the same to you. But we ain't got an accountant, George. I knows that, don't I? Money we earn, we can't afford one, can we? We can't even afford to look after the farm. The cesspit's leaking, the roof's falling in on the barn, the whole place is coming apart. And now the hydraulics have gone on the tractor again. How are we going to pay for that to be fixed? Every year we get less and less from that supermarket and they get more and more from us. And I'll wager Dodge gets a fine cut out of fine foods. They're as greedy as each other, I reckon. They are regular buyers, George. Like Mr Dodge said, and they always pays up front. He's been screwing us into the ground for years now. They've got us over a barrel, Hilda, and I don't know how to get us off it. We're just ignorant farmers trodden down by the likes of him. Well, it's always me mum's jewellery, George. Coming handy last time the hydraulics went on the tractor. Oh, it don't seem right, your family treasures. Things like that should be invested for our old age somehow. Not traipsing in and out of the pawn shop every time you have an unexpected expense. George! Ah, Mr Dodge. I got your message. You've managed to see your accountant then? Ah. And today you're ready to sign? Mm. Same as last year, is it? Yeah. Spuds, turnips, those big Swedes. I reckon. Though we got something we ain't done before. Oh, really? You didn't tell me last week you were diversifying. No, well, it, it's it's a new thing, see? Hmm? Not really a commercial crop yet. Bit of an experiment, you might say. Don't think anyone else around here is doing them. I'm all ears, George. What is it? Oh, Mumparas, Mr Dodge. Mum 
Paras? Aye, it were my wife's idea. She's up there now, picking some earlies. You want to see? Why not? There it is, Mr Dodge. A Mumpara tree. Mumpara? I don't know them. Oh, you will, Mr Dodge, you will. My brother-in-law brought the first one over from South Africa. He gave us one to try out like, and it growed into this. They look a bit like green gauges to me, George. Mumparas they are, Mr Dodge. Not many of them about. Not in England, anyhow. What's the fruit like? Well, it don't taste like a green gauge, and that's for sure. But Ilda reckons they could catch on. It'd be an exclusive like for fine foods. That's why she thought as you might be interested, I suppose. Well, I don't know. What's the yield? Per tree, well, I reckon you're looking at between four, five hundred fruit. Hmm. Not bad for a green gauge. Mumpara, Mr Dodge. They have their own flavour, you say? <laughs> yeah, well, that's the thing you see, Mr Dodge. Never taken to them myself. Not really to my taste. Hilda, Mr Dodge is here. Yes, I know. Good morning, Mr Dodge. Good morning, Mrs Furrow. George has been telling me about your new crop. The Mumparas. Hilda says they're very versatile. You can use them for cooking, Mr Dodge. Or just eating. Here's a couple fresh from the tree. Here. Thank you, Mrs Furrow. Oh, they're a bit... Just be careful with the pips. Oh. You don't want to oh. bite on them too hard. You are right, Mr Dodge? Yep, yep, I, I see what you mean. Um, it is a hard stone and no mistake. Like a cherry stone. But, but what, Mr Dodge? Hmm? Um, yeah, sure, um, I, um, look, I've got to get into town. Uh, that pip, you know, um... I'll, I'll be in touch. Oh. What's wrong with him then? No idea. Yes, they taste disgusting. And worse than that, Betty, when I bit into it, the damn stone nearly broke my tooth. I spat it out, but when I looked at the thing closely, it glinted back at me in the sunlight. Kind of metallic looking. She gave me two of these Mumpara things to try, so I opened up the other one to check, and it was the same. The metallic pip? Well, it looked like it, but I wasn't sure. So I went round to the jewellers and asked him what it was. Um really? Oh, it's metal all right. Well, fine foods can't be selling those to the public. No matter how they taste, fruit with metal in. Well, that's a health hazard. I wasn't thinking of selling them to the public. It's not just any metal, Betty. It's gold. Gold? What are you talking about, Justin? Fruit with gold and pips? That's what the jeweller said. 24 carat. He must be wrong. He must be. Otherwise, the farmer wouldn't let you anywhere near them, would he? 
He'd have taken a few burrow loads to the bank and retired to a life of leisure. All the farmer's ignorant bet. Got no idea what he's sitting on. All he knows is he don't like the taste. But think of this. Each tree carries nearly 500 of those fruit. If each fruit has a stone in like the one nearly broke my tooth, and I can get them off him before he finds out what they're really worth, 500 times, I don't know, four or 500 quid, say? Well, each tree would produce a crop of gold worth about a quarter of a million pound. Each tree, Betty, every year. How many? Well, I've only got ten at the moment. How long do they take to grow? The soil here suits them well enough? Yes, they, they grow very quick. In a couple of years, they start to fruit, and every year, as they mature... They... And you say no one else is growing them? Well, as far as I know. Have you told anyone about them? No, not really. Only you. Ten trees, you say, you've got? Yeah, that's right, ten. And they're all the same fruit, same flavour, all the same, inside? Oh, yeah, identical. Same all cuttings from that first sapling me wife's brother brought over from South Africa, see? They're all the same, yeah. Hmm. Pity. Oh. Why is that, Mr Dodge? Well, quite frankly, Mr Furrow, with that very individual flavour, I don't see a ready market for them as they stand. You don't want them, then? Well, I'm... I'm not saying that exactly. Oh. What are you saying, exactly? I'll have them off you. Do you want a box of fruit? George. George. I can see things at the farm are difficult. It's difficult for all farmers, I know. Maintaining the property, the machinery... You say that again. Unexpected expenses. Some crops you can't be sure will sell. We're friends, aren't we, George? We've known each other a few years now, haven't we? You want two boxes? I'll have the lot, George. You want all the fruit? All the trees, George. For fine foods? I'm not with you, Mr Dodge. Justin, please. I've been in this game some time now, George. I've visited many small holdings like yours. And, you know, over the years... I've kind of developed a hankering for, well, for having a go myself. You know what I mean? Well, not really, Mr. Um, Julian. Justin, how old, if it's not a rude question, George, how old are you now? Well, uh... Let me put it this way. Might you be thinking of retiring sometime soon, perhaps? Uh, I think about it every day. But there's no way we could afford to do that. Old farmers like me, Mr. Julian, we don't stop. We just go to seed. Uh, How much, George, would you say that this farm is worth? Not enough to retire on, Mr. Dodge, and that's a fact. Half a million? Half a... If you wanted to sell, George, I'd give you twice that. For this whole place... Mumpara trees included. 
Salop, you mean. Why not? Ah, Hilda. Morning, Mr Dodge. Mr Dodge was saying he wants to be a farmer, like us. Does he indeed? And why is that, Mr Dodge? Just then, please. It's a dream, Mrs Furrow. A dream built up over the years. And give up your lucrative career with fine foods. Oh, there's more to life than money, Mrs Furrow. Or can I call you Hilda? And on what farm would you be thinking of pursuing your dream? Oh, no, that's the interesting part, you see, Hild. Mr Dodge, Julian here, says he wants to buy this one. It's Justin, George. And why not? Yes, it needs a little work. What? No, nothing major, not anything to mention, really. No, it's a fine farm. You've looked after it well. Very well. And that's why I believe you deserve a rest, both of you. Mr Julian says he'd give us a million pound, Ilda. Oh, That would go nicely towards our retirement, wouldn't it? Mr Dodge, you've quite taken me by surprise. I don't know, I'm sure. But if we was thinking of selling, which we're not, are we, George? Well, uh... I don't think... Only a million. You said yourself what a nice place it is, Mr Dodge. Julian, just... Well looked after as it is and all. It has a reputation, Mr Dodge, built up by my father and his father afore him, over 150 years or more. That's worth a good deal, Mr Dodge. A really good deal. So what sort of figure might you find acceptable, Mrs um, Hilda? Five million. <laughs> I couldn't believe it when he agreed that. <laughs> Must be 20 times the value of the whole farm. <laughs> well, yeah. Unless each of them Mompara fruits worth, what, four or five hundred pounds, sir? <laughs> what do you mean? Each fruit worth one? If each fruit had, say, a pip inside it worth... Four hundred pound, he'd stand to make something like two million from just them ten trees, wouldn't he, every year? And if he planted more... What are you talking about, woman? Are you as daft as him? Them umparas don't even have pips. Not usually, no. So what are you on about? Well, I think you're dodgy Mr Dodge. He thinks they do. Why would he think that? Because he nearly broke his tooth on one of them, remember? Yeah, you're right, he did, but I hadn't thought about that. How'd that happen? Maybe a little nugget or something accidentally found its way into a couple of them Momparas. Nugget? Nugget? Of gold, say. Gold? What What you mean, gold? Where'd that have come from? Well, you did say me mum's jewellery should be invested for our old age. It melted down a treat. Quite a good investment, I reckon. <laughs> Blow me, Hilda. <laughs> I always said she was better than any accountant, but, but this... George. <laughs> you know what, Hilda? 
You're worth more than gold to me. <laughs> Here's to us, George. To us, Hilda. In Pips by John Stanbury, George was played by Martin Bourne and Hilda by Val Harrison. Julian, sorry, Justin Dodge was played by Nigel Buckley and Betty by Catherine Ryle. Pips was directed in our studio here by John Plush. And that brings us to the successful conclusion of the August issue of Look Here, in which the winners and losers were Jim Norris, Goodbye. Phil Lee, Goodbye. and Jane Fairs. Goodbye. I'm Pippa, and our thanks this month go to Tim Curtis, to David Day, Sylvia Day, and Carol Hartle for copying and administration. And finally, but particularly, to John Plush, editor and producer extraordinaire. So until next time, it's cheerio from all the Look Here team. Goodbye. <laughs>